Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here is CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. I hear there's a kind of a, a comeback for people getting into government bonds. Are there decent interest rates to be had out there if you're looking to get a better return in the stock market? Well, one of the upside surprises of the um, of the last couple of years is that bond rates yields have gone up. Now, of course, the flip side of that is that prices have gone down. So if you own a bond fund inside of your IRA or your retirement account, you're going to say, oh, Jill, this is terrible. You know, it was down 11 or 12 percent last year, and that's horrible. But the cool thing about it is if you continued to invest throughout the year, you bought those shares at a lower price, and as bonds matured in your bond portfolio, in your mutual fund, the manager was able to buy new bonds that are yielding higher rates. So it's government bonds, it is municipal bonds, it is uh, corporate bonds. All bonds are yielding higher rates. Now, what about some of the uh, intra- they're calling them introductory interest rates that uh, some banks are offering and they seem really, really high. Is there any catch there? You know, it's introductory, so it'll re- it will regress to the mean, as we say in uh, statistics. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean? It means that, yeah, you know, you get a nice bump and then it'll go away. If you are seeking the highest rates for like a boring savings, checking, money market, uh, short-term CD – I would encourage you to go online. There's a lot of different aggregation sites like there's a depositaccounts.com, there's bankrate.com. You go onto those sites and you start looking and you'll find that online institutions pay much more than your brick and mortar. So keep enough in your local bank so that you get free stuff. But if you've got excess savings, it's a fine idea to go out and get an account that has FDIC insurance and yields more. And I think that that's a wonderful idea for people especially if you're one of those folks who gets like very nervous and you keep more savings on hand than, you know, the standard six to 12 months. Maybe you keep a year and a half or two years because it makes you feel better. Using those online aggregation services can really help you out. And, you know, it has been a saver's lament for uh, the decade before COVID that I get no interest. And now you're finally getting interest and I don't hear everybody dancing. I don't hear the big <laughs> balloons. What, what happened to the parade? Well, I'm, I'm dancing over those, the Treasury Department's I bought. It's it's a it's a great deal. The thing is, they don't let you they don't let you buy that much of them. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing. So it's ten thousand dollars per tax per tax ID per year um, at calendar year. And remember, those interest rates will adjust every six months. So it's mm-hmm. not like you buy. You know, you think, oh, I got a bond and it paid eight percent for. It wasn't for five years. It was for the six months period, right? You hold the bond for five years, but it adjusts based on the consumer price index. Still a good deal. Still, I mean, I talked about that early on. I think that was like my biggest, um, most watched video from CBS Mornings was when I talked about I-bonds for the first time. Mm -hmm. People were like, what's an I-bond? And they're great. They're safe. Um, If you need instant access, if you know you need the money within three to six months, you should not buy them because there's a penalty if you break them earlier than um, that that period. But, you know, if you want to keep some cash on hand for, you know, a year, five years, that's a good that's a good choice. And. There's no danger that we not, might not get our payments if this whole debt thing isn't resolved soon. 
Well, here's a good news. Um, you're not getting payment um, right away. You don't you don't get the money. You're not getting a check sent to you. If there is no resolution to the debt ceiling, I doubt that that um, the interest on savings bonds is going to be the first thing on the chopping block. And even if there was like a moment where they didn't pay, all the money will be refunded. And we have bigger problems after that. Don't yeah. worry. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. There's new research out that seems to show a link between nightmares, persistent nightmares that you may have had as a child and the development of dementia in adulthood. Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen. MD. This isn't a, uh, a legit publication, right? Yeah, Dave, it is legit. And it's interesting because this is really the first study of its kind to investigate the association between distressing dreams during childhood and the risk of developing cognitive impairment or even Parkinson's disease in adulthood. And it was published in The Lancet, which is an extremely reputable medical journal. So a scientist at the University of Birmingham looked at 7,000 patients who came from what was called the 1958 British birth cohort study. So he had over 60 years worth of patients to be able to follow. He looked at the data from those, and there was data in there where they had talked to mothers of children uh, in sort of the 5 to 11-year age group and asked them about their sleep patterns. And there was a group of kids who were having uh, distressing dreams during that period of life. And then when they followed up, you know, 50 years, 60 years later, they found that those kids were about twice as likely to have developed either cognitive impairment or Parkinson's disease. So the observation is if you've had distressing diseases in childhood, then it's possible that it's related to the development of cognitive impairment or Parkinson's disease, but it does not necessarily mean that they're connected. And that's why it's just an observational study. Okay. Remind us now what Parkinson's disease is and what the, what the early symptoms are that, that indicate you have it. Parkinson's is, it's a brain disorder. So it's like cognitive impairment and it is associated with unintended or uncontrollable movements such as shaking or stiffness or people sometimes have difficulty with balance and coordination and usually it starts off pretty mild but then uh, gradually worsens over time as the disease progresses and one of the most famous people that you probably are aware of who has brought attention to it is Michael J. Fox, who was, you know, the famous actor who developed at a young age and got worse over time. And ultimately, people may get to the point where they have difficulty walking and talking. But it's a neurological defect, cognitive impairment, or, you know, a variety of different forms of uh, dementia. And that can include uh, Alzheimer's as well. So is there a causal relationship that would explain this observed relationship between the nightmares and the eventual onset of the disease? So that's an interesting question, and obviously the answer to it isn't yet known. But we do know that now there are genetic predispositions to developing different types of cognitive impairment, different types of dementia, to developing Alzheimer's and even Parkinson's. You know, maybe it's just that you have a genetic predisposition to developing the disease and it first gets manifest in childhood in the form of bad dreams at night. 
So is there any, is anybody working on some sort of treatment where if you detected this uh, tendency early, you could actually prevent the disease? You know, a lot of cognitive impairment disorders are, are thought to be uh, have a vascular origin. So they're part of the cardiovascular system. So, you know, we always talk about the things that lead to a healthy cardiovascular system, you know, doing exercise, uh, eating a healthy diet, watching your blood pressure, making sure it's well controlled, keeping your cholesterol numbers low and maintaining an active lifestyle, not just exercise, but maintaining an active lifestyle outside of exercise. Because we know that they're healthy. They're healthy because they reduce inflammation in our body. And inflammation is really the source of so many disease processes. But also, as long as we're maintaining a good, healthy circulation throughout our entire body, it really helps to minimize the chance of developing a lot of other conditions. And so, you know, it's funny where we can talk about almost any illness and the recommendations sort of always end up being the same. Because it is actually the one thing that we can control in our life. We can choose to live a healthy lifestyle. So if we don't smoke, eat right, well, then there's a good chance you're going to do okay for the long haul. Well, I like that. So every time we hear about one of these, these associations that may be an early warning for horrible disease, that's your cue to get the heck outside and uh, jog for a couple of miles, huh? I mean, a lot of people don't like jogging, but moving can be something that's just as simple as go for a walk, go hiking in the woods. You know, there's so many things that that can be done like that to help make it interesting. And it doesn't have to be, you know, pounding the pavement and beating up your knees and your joints running all the time. <laughs> yeah. Good point. So just uh, doing a little yard work or just taking a walk is better than sitting and staring at your iPhone is what you're telling me. Yeah. Yard work, gardening. That's a, a great activity. What are you doing on next Saturday? I could have you over for a little bit of backyard <laughs> raking. <laughs> sure, I'm more than happy to come over and rake your leaves for you. <laughs> it's actually mostly pine cones. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. You hear a lot about the fentanyl epidemic in America, but to appreciate how tragic it has really become... You have to look at the individual cases. And so this week, on uh, this week's edition of Crime and Punishment, Casey McNerthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office is going to tell us a story of a woman in Redmond who was found slumped over the steering wheel. She'd been there for hours, and in her lap was her three-month-old son. So, Casey, what happened here? It really is a heartbreaking case. And when you see the photos from this case, it's like any time that you see a child involved in a case like this, a child endangerment case, it's 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 hard to unsee it. Ribbon police responded and uh, CPS also got involved. They said that they found meth and uh, the mother admitted there was fentanyl in the child's SpongeBob plate that was in the center console. And also they uh, said that there was a history of, of fentanyl shortly after the child was born. She was in court last week and charged with endangerment with a controlled substance. Uh, what we're seeing in King County, like cities across the nation, is this fentanyl epidemic and only a few years ago in 2015 there were three fentanyl overdoses in the entire county and last year was up to 685 the same with cases involving children Uh, before 2019 there were no criminal cases where fentanyl was a factor in a child's death and last year was a record year Uh, celia lee is a senior deputy prosecutor and the vice chair of our special assault unit at, at the king county prosecutor's office who handles cases just like this one 
last year was a record year. We've never had three overdose deaths from fentanyl, and we had those last year. I have had cases where toddlers are put to bed in, you know, cribs or pack and plays with drug paraphernalia, or toddlers who can find um, hundreds of pills next to candy in the nightstand right next to where they sleep. So I think that there are real questions about can people who are suffering from this addiction to this terrible drug, can they safely parent their kids? What's also really heartbreaking, when children don't die from this, they can be very serious brain damage, and we're not exactly sure of all the long-term consequences. And there's not one way only that children can, can ingest this. Really, we have two different kinds of cases. We have cases where children inhale fentanyl, and they're exposed in that manner. Um, and we have cases where children ingest it, meaning they find blue pills, they find M30s, and they eat them. Um, and so in the cases where children ingest them, obviously they're getting more fentanyl, and those are more likely to result in their death. So we will get a phone call sometimes in the middle of the night about a child death, and we work with investigators. We approve search warrants, we go to the scene, and we go to the autopsies. In addition to these deaths, maybe what's most alarming is there's a big problem with the law. The law that outlines felony child endangerment hasn't been updated in years, and it can only apply if meth is involved. That's why it was possible to charge that as a felony case in this Redmond investigation, because there was meth and fentanyl. Here's Celia explaining why if you only had fentanyl, you wouldn't be able to charge it as a felony. So in terms of child death, we can charge parents if we have sufficient evidence with charges of manslaughter for either negligently or recklessly causing the death of a child by leaving fentanyl, a deadly drug, accessible to a child. When a child survives exposure to fentanyl, there are only limited charges available to us. So for example, our Supreme Court invalidated our drug possession law in 2021 by the Blake decision. So what we're left with is a law called reckless endangerment by a controlled substance. It's a felony to intentionally expose a dependent child to methamphetamine. But that law hasn't really caught up to where we are today with the fentanyl crisis. And so that law, can, that, that charge can only be charged if a child has methamphetamine in their blood or urine. If it's simply fentanyl and the child survives, what we're limited to is a misdemeanor charge, which is really disproportionate to the danger and the harm. Of course, none of that puts the family back together, right? I mean, what happens to the child while the mother is going through the judicial system? Yeah. What happens to the mother, it, it can really depend on the circumstance. If there's another parent, another family member, or they can also go to CPS. It's really important to note here that the goal is not to throw parents in jail with no services. The goal that both police and prosecutors want is to, is to have children and parents both be safe. Um, and court orders can help mandate treatment. Um, What's hard with misdemeanor reckless endangerment is that there's no probation. If you have that felony charge, a judge can order up to 12 months of supervision, which can include substance abuse assessments and monitoring. And what Celia and others are pushing for is a change in the law that, that would just add a few words that would add fentanyl or other drugs like heroin. And, and so the goal is not to get parents separated from their kids and sit in a jail cell forever. The goal is, is to keep those kids safe and to help them overcome their addiction. And when you, when you have that court-ordered treatment, there can be much better outcomes with parents. When we do charge people with endangerment by a controlled substance, for example, parents, um, when there is methamphetamine, and often M30s do have methamphetamine and fentanyl contained within them, those parents are often suffering from addiction. They're not able to take care of their child because their child's being exposed to these dangerous drugs. And we have really multiple systems to try to assist parents in addressing their addiction so that they can become a safe and healthy parent for that child. 
where a parent has to engage in services, has to address their underlying addiction in order to be a parent that can safely take care of their child. It's unlikely that there's going to be a change in this session, but I'm, I'm sure what Celia and others will keep pushing for is for that change to happen in upcoming years. Because if if you're able to get that law changed, you would see a, a, a huge difference. And really just to have it catch up to where we are in this fentanyl crisis to try to help people get that court-ordered treatment. Yeah. Uh, although I still can't get past uh, the idea that you got to do something to the people who sell these dangerous drugs that, that accounts for the, the harm it does beyond just the person they sell it to. And that's really where Joe Marcosano, uh, who we talked to a couple weeks ago, comes in and his team, where if if you can, can prove that somebody knew that this could kill somebody and it was that dose that did kill the child uh, or kill the parent, that's where you can try to charge a controlled substance homicide. The difficulty there is the more time elapses between when a drug is delivered and when the death happens, the harder it is to prove. I think that our biggest hope, and I think law enforcement shares this hope, is that our systems can work together to promote child welfare and that children can grow up in healthy, happy, loving homes with parents who are able to protect them and are able to address their own chemical dependency issues. Are there success stories where that has actually happened, Casey? It's a tough one because fentanyl can, can, can grab a hold of people real quick and, and really change them. But especially through things like drug court, we see that there's a drug court graduation that's coming up this month. And there, are, you know, anytime that you go to one of those, you see amazing, really moving success stories. And that was started by Republican Norm Mailing years ago, back in 1994. And so when you hear those stories of, you know, very often you, you have people who say, I would have been dead. I would have been in prison or, in, in, you know, worse in my addiction. It is encouraging to hear those stories and it is possible. Well, it's good to know that there are at least uh, a few happy endings. Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. Certainly. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird and Company. Love is love is love is love. Even when you're a widowed goose. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. To me, some of the saddest tombstones are the incompletes, the couples, where one has passed, but the other still present, buried above, under a mound of loneliness. (laughs) Such as the case of Blossom the Goose. Last August, Blossom lost her mate, Bud. They lived on the pond here at Riverside Cemetery in Marshalltown, Iowa. And according to cemetery staff, after Bud died... Blossom's grief was as evident as any human's. Her behavior was just, it was quite a change. General Manager Dory Tommen says Blossom started hanging out near the front office, always staring at herself in the glass or the model tombstones. She wanted company. Even if it's just a reflection. Yeah. And that's when Dory got a crazy idea. A hysterically lovely, crazy idea. She posted a personal ad that read in part, Lonely widowed domestic goose seeks life partner for companionship and occasional shenanigans. I'm youthful, adventurous, and lively. And what are the odds you're going to find some goose, a male goose? Oh, in Iowa? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this state is lousy with bachelor geese. So the phone rings? Mm-hmm. And what do you hear? Honk, 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 honk. No, I didn't hear anything like that. <laughs> Instead, she heard humans Deb and Randy Hoyt, 
owners of a widower goose named Frankie. He needed a mate. Yeah, and plus he, he's so lonely. You know, I thought, well, that'll be great, you know. And so they set up a blind date where Blossom welcomed Frankie with open wings. They started walking off together and they haven't really left each other's side since. A loving reminder that until your last day is etched in stone, don't ever give up on finding goosebumps. Isn't that cute? That is cute. Well, it warms my heart. 7.48. Seattle's Morning News. And now, direct from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is Ursula Reutin. Don't stop dancing, Ursula. Good this is morning. <laughs> and our uh, big Powerball winner who works at Boeing, uh, apparently decided just to come out and uh, go public. Well, she's not going to have a choice because Washington is one of those states that does not protect your identity. So there are only a handful of states where you can remain anonymous. And so uh, our state believes that it's part of public record and people can access public Mm -hmm. records. So I think she figured my name's going to get out there anyway. So, yeah, Becky... From Auburn, uh, a, a supply chain analyst from Boeing is the big winner of that $754 million Powerball ticket. Uh, which now she chose to do the lump sum. Of course. So it brings it down to a uh, mere $310 million dollars after taxes. <laughs> I would choke on that, too. <laughs> That's a lot. That's so... A lot. Um, the, the question is, though, is she going to be one of the ones that bucks the trend? Will Becky buck the trend of lottery winners who go broke within five years? Is that is that really a thing? That they, oh, most of them go cursed. broke within five it years? It sadly is. And I always say, you know what? I'm willing to take that risk. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because people ask, well, you're going to be miserable. That's just too much money. To which I say... Try me. <laughs> look, at, look, at, look at Mackenzie Scott and exactly. how she's been able to give away. So that's what you need to do yeah. with that kind of money. Well, what needs to happen right now is the first thing she needs to do, which I believe she has. I, I, I heard from the grapevine that she has uh, brought on a financial expert. You need to get a financial expert. You need to get an attorney. Yeah. And you need to get a backbone so that you can say no to all the people who are going to be coming out of the woodwork asking you for money. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what gets so many people into trouble. Um, They end up just wanting to give away so much at the beginning. Uh, So whether it's uh, giving away the money or making crummy investments, uh, yes, you were asking, is it really a thing? So it was the National Endowment for Financial Education that did the study. And yes, up to 70% within five years go bankrupt. I'm like, how do you blow through all that money? Yeah. There's also some really awful stories, too, of of lottery winners being targeted and not surviving. So So. uh, James Ranishevis and I were like, okay, our names are unusual enough that we would have to change our names. Yes. (laughs) And you have the money to do it. (laughs) Just keep changing it, like, semi-annually. Just, you know. Hmm. How could she take the, the, the target aspect away. I mean, if you, if you started giving it away, right, to worthy causes that everybody thought were really worthy, you become uh, a hero, right? You do become a hero, but that's where you've got to have the right team in place, mm-hmm. people to protect you from yourself, because you are going to want to be benevolent. You are going to want to be generous, and there are going to be people who have all sorts of sob stories, 
and there's going to be so every lottery winner uh, who has gotten into trouble has said either I wish I never won that money, mm-hmm. which just breaks my heart, mm-hmm. or they say um, I wish I had um, thought about getting people to basically protect me from myself. And so I would be one of those because, you know, every once in a while, I mean, if there's going to be a big fat lottery jackpot, I'm the one who tries to do the pool. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So you can yeah. drain Cairo I, Radio of its employees. Yeah. I bought into those a couple of times. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You're terrible at picking lottery numbers. I, may I just say. Uh, yeah. Just so everyone can rest easy because that we're not in danger of losing a whole bunch of employees because it seems like the numbers that we get yeah. are, you know, never more than two. But Becky... Do you, did you hear how Becky picked her numbers? Yes, yeah, I did. Okay, so but yeah, tell so, the story because so, it's pretty so, good. Yeah, so she works for she's about she was about ready to retire from uh, Boeing in Auburn, and she decided to uh, she saw that the jackpot had gone up to seven hundred forty seven million, and uh, she remembered that hey, wait a minute. We just said goodbye. You know, the last seven forty seven jumbo jet yeah. uh, was delivered. And so the stars uh, have aligned. Exactly. Time to buy the ticket. So she was with and her daughter wins. in uh, Auburn at the Fred Meyer there. And then she got the winning ticket. Oh, my God. See, this just this is dangerous because it just affirms my belief that signs are everywhere and that you should act upon those signs. Yeah. <laughs> because I do that when it comes to the lottery. Why haven't I won? Huh? <laughs> I know. I always have signs, too. And I think it's the sign is. Don't bother. <laughs> the sign is you have too much hope. Do you buy? Do you still buy tickets on a regular basis? Only when it gets to really high. Of course, because that's yeah. the only time it's a really good investment. Yeah. yeah. You don't. You don't. Only do. when I can generate excitement in this building. <laughs> you generate excitement every day when you that's walk right. in, oh. just by walking in with that beaming <laughs> smile. Absolutely. You look like a lottery winner, even oh. if you're not one. Yeah. I love you. Ursula Roy team with G at nine o'clock. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Cindy Spiegel has written a book called Micro Joys about finding hope in the little things when life is not okay. And, and I think people would be very interested to hear about the reason you wrote this book. 2020 was a terrible year for you, wasn't it? That is an understatement. 2020 was awful. It really was. What happened? Well, uh, in the midst of a global pandemic and quarantine, my 32-year-old nephew was murdered walking to a friend's house in May. Within four months, my beloved mother passed away unexpectedly. Within a month of us burying my mom, my brother had a stroke and then went into cardiac arrest where he spent the next two and a half months in the intensive care unit. And by the grace of God, he made it home. And within a month, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh my God. So all of that happened in a 10-month span of time. So, And that was my 2020. Yeah. So did you, I mean, did you develop your philosophy on your own? Or did you sign up with a counselor or how did you get through that? No, 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 no. This was, you know, I, I had written a book about positive thinking two years before this. I've always been an optimist. But what I found was that when I was in the midst of, of my own hardest things, I could not positive think my way out of it. What I needed more than anything was hope. Mm. I needed to know that I could be okay, even if I wasn't okay in that moment. It was simply that microjoys was a term that I started to talk about 
as I noticed these moments that were in front of me, they didn't change my grief. They didn't bring anyone back. They really allowed me to hold that grief and that loss and still find moments of joy. I relate to this uh, on a a big level. I, I didn't go through the same experiences as you, but I do remember a time in which I couldn't remember what joy felt like, and that's mm-hmm. called depression. And so I had to relearn what joy is. Can you define joy for us, uh, for others, so yes. they understand? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, what I will say before I get into that is that I think the word joy and happiness are often conflated. Uh Happiness is fleeting. It is triggered by external things, right? We we buy something nice and we feel good. We experience that sort of dopamine hit. That is not sustainable. Happiness is not a permanent state. Joy, on the other hand, is stable. It is an internal way of being. And when we are going through these experiences of depression, you know, we can't, we can't see any of that. We can't feel these moments of joy. We can't feel or experience these moments of happiness. And my hope with this book is that at the very least, we walk away from reading these essays with an understanding that joy, there, there are moments for us to be joyful about, even when we are going through the hardest things. It won't change those things. It won't make them go away. It simply gives us these moments of respite when we need it most. My secret is a digital picture frame. Because, you know, mm. we, we only take pictures of the happy moments. So I have digital picture frames around the house. And I actually also use that as my screensaver. Just picks a random thing from the photo album. And I, what I like about it is every, it, it will surprise you with something yeah. great that you forgot happened. Mm-hmm. And it's not something major. It's like That's maybe right. a birthday party or, you know, the kids on the playground. And that gives me that, that tiny lift sometimes just when you need it. That is a micro joy, right? It's easily accessible. It is there for you. Micro joys are not about the highlight reel, right? It's the everyday, the ordinary, the mundane, where you can see kids playing on a playground. You know, maybe that's not someone's highlight reel, but what a cool way to feel good, you know, and what an accessible way to feel good. That is a micro joy. That That is it. You also founded a group. Uh, let's see. It's called Dear Grown Ass Women. And it's an <laughs> online organization for women over 35. I'm wondering, yeah. if is, is there a demographic of, of women that uh, are needing this lesson and finding joy? Is there something about being over 35 that joy just gets sucked out of your life? <laughs> gets sucked right out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I transitioned my own career when I was 35 a decade ago. And so that particular moment in life, I just remember feeling very much like I, nobody teaches us how to make new friends <laughs> as adults. <laughs> Like, where do we find new people? We're not going to go pick up friends in bars. And so it became really important to me that that 35 is a pivotal time in our lives, particularly as women, that we are able to be an inclusive community to experience not just our own joy. You know, I talk in the book about Freudenfreude, the the joy for others. Sometimes being in community and in conversation with other folks, we are also able to tap into their joy. So does something magical happen at 35? Yeah, life. Life <laughs> happens and, and we sort of sometimes need a boost. Cindy Spiegel is the author of Micro Joys. And Cindy, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for helping to spread the word. 847 Seattle's Morning News. If a cherry tree falls along Pike Street, would anybody hear? Suppose eight of them fell. 
If anything happens on Pike Street, will anybody here? Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, is here with a rare Monday morning appearance uh, because of the situation involving what's called a linear grove of cherry trees that are now 40 years old in downtown Seattle and are about to be cut down to make way for what? A couple of bike lanes. Bike lanes. Have you lanes. seen these things? They're the part of the street. There's a special painting. I guess people ride their mm. bikes in them on those Apparently rare sunny so. days in Seattle when there's not any hills. This is this this could uh, form some interesting uh, bedfellows here or or conflicts if you have the bike people against the tree huggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated story. Again, it's one of these instances of something that people like going away and in in the name of progress, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a terrific Seattle Times story all about this a few days ago by David Croman. He goes deep into the details. The trees were planted back in 1880, and they blossom every year just like the trees on the UW campus and in so many yards and parking strips around the city. There were originally a total of either 12 or 13, I'm unclear on that, between, on Pike Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, but either four or five or died and been damaged over the years. Now, that block slated to get wider sidewalks and a bike lane in each direction, part of a big project to connect downtown and Capitol Hill. Trees have been marked for removal, and that removal could be happening as early as right this moment, um, as far as we know. Mm. Now, there was a public process, but the cherry trees did not make the cut for being kept and nurtured there along one of the most picturesque blocks in downtown Seattle. And that's a shame, says Ruth Danner of a nonprofit group called Save the Market Entrance. Those trees line the entrance to Pike Place Market. When you go from the city into Pike Place Market, you know that you are going someplace special and different, um, which all of First Avenue there by Pike Street is a unique step into the past. I've lived in that neighborhood. It's a place for people to come together and get a breath of fresh air and a change from the city pace. Now, Ruth Dander said the volunteers from her group uh, were down on Pike Street yesterday tying yellow ribbons on the eight remaining cherry trees, and those ribbons are made out of, yes, caution tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Save the Market Entrance, which is the name of that group, they say the trees don't need to be removed and replaced with elms, which is part of the plan. Um, those elms apparently take more maintenance than the cherry trees have taken. She also says that with proper care, which actually is the responsibility of the adjacent property owners, not the city, just like anyone's parking strip here in the city, those trees can live for 80 years, not just 40. They're not, they're not necessarily near the end of their life. And all that comes from that famous Seattle tree guy, Arthur Lee Jacobson, who we've had on this show before. So what's next? Uh, Save the Market Entrance is pretty much out of time at this point, and they're not interested in pursuing some kind of a legal strategy or chaining themselves to a bulldozer or anything. What we really want is for Mayor Harrell to issue a stay of execution so that we can find alternatives, whether the trees can remain there or be re-gifted to a low-income neighborhood that is that would cherish them and honor them. We just need more time. So there's, as far as I know, there's no plans to transplant or otherwise save those trees. And adult trees are very difficult. Mature trees are well, very yeah. difficult to properly transplant. You have to remove huge parts of the root ball and everything. And I, right. I'm no expert on that. Um, you said there was a process. Did she get a chance to testify? Yeah, people submitted letters. People spoke. The uh, Office of Waterfront, um, the, the work at, part of the city that's working on the waterfront, they're running this project and they did have a public process. It's mm-hmm. kind of uniting everything of downtown Seattle. Pike Place Market, the Pike Pine Corridor, and that beautiful waterfront, which they have plans for. So this is sort of a small part of the equation. It didn't make the cut. Um, It's an emotional thing for Ruth Danner. She got kind of pretty upset when we were talking about this earlier this morning. Um, Pike Place Market Development Authority, the the group that runs the Pike Place Market, they haven't taken a position on this. 
So there's not a groundswell of support. It's a fairly small group, as far as I can tell, a fairly small group of very vocal people who want to save those trees. And, you know, we all want to save trees. And the cherry blossoms are really cool. They're so ephemeral, right? They're just there for that short period of time, which makes it kind of special, and more special than elm tree, I guess. So. Yeah, Chance. we just had that report too from Heather Bosch last week about I think the it was tree Nicole canopy, Jenny. Yeah, yeah the yeah. tree canopy and how it's heating up cities. The more trees we get rid of, yeah. the less shade we have. It, cities are heating, and we're already hot. We have this heat dome every summer now with tripled. And I don't think these cherry trees, right, are going to yeah, make yeah. us go up a degree. But there needs to be some sort of process in the city, knowing how dire the situation is, for a replacement yeah. or some sort of mitigation. And they will put in some kind of elm trees, which apparently require more maintenance. They aren't the cherry trees; aren't with the blossoms, and yeah. so. They, they did take that into account. It's just... How long will those take to mature, though? And actually 500 years yeah. is what it says here. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. No, not, that, not that long. Yeah. No. I mean, we're at Se- Seattle's in this ugly adolescence, and we have been for decades. We will be for many more decades. Yeah. This is one of those times where something's changing. A very vocal, uh, emotional group is upset about it. I understand, but sort of progress is there making way for things like bike lanes, which will serve mm-hmm. the city for centuries, right? And the elm trees will come back and create the, or the canopy that needs to be there. But you know you can't you can't please everybody I guess. But I know we lost the elm trees. I think it was along Terry Avenue behind St James Cathedral because they got oh. uh, these diseases. Oh, something. the Dutch elm disease. Yeah, yeah. And they cut them down, but they put new ones up there, and they seem to be uh, thriving. And I'm told that these new elm trees that will replace the cherry trees have been specifically engineered to thrive in city environment. I mean, they went down to the gene <laughs> level to engineer them to be city trees, not these country trees. But yeah. city trees, yeah. more elegant, yeah. erudite trees. Oh, and, when the, yeah. and when the elms blossom, it's such a beautiful time of year, everyone takes pictures. No, do the elms actually blossom? I don't think I don't they mean, do. They, yeah, just, they, they drop their leaves from yeah, time to yeah. time. So they, that's, they, they blossom Freddy Krueger. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Elm Street. <laughs> so, I get it. So hug a tree today, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Tell your trees you love them because you never know when the city's going to come that's and just right. hack them down. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. That's a special uh, edition of Breaking History News. We need to, we got to have a sounder for that. Yeah, I love the idea like, of Breaking History News. I'd be here every morning if there was something. I can be your Foley artist if you want. I like that. Yeah. Chainsaw. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.